0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joining you for our Friday edition of the Revelation Questions podcast, the Revelation series Apocalypse After Party podcast. And we're coming off of uh, two weeks without a podcast. We have a couple of questions from the last two lessons in this podcast episode. Um, and, And as usual, we have some great questions. I like to start this off by right. asking for a little recap of the lesson that you've done. You're getting into the second uh, section, the second huge section of the book. Of course, all of that is a little bit in the eye of the beholder. But uh, what what we talked about right. in our last podcast was whether or not the book starts over. And if you take that view, we're in the middle of the second section. Uh, other views will have us in various <laughs> right. places.
1: Exactly. Well, the last two lessons have been, first of all, chapter 13, which is where the uh, dragon, that's Satan, raises up a beast from the sea and a beast from the land. But I'm going to call them instead the Antichrist and the false prophet. That's how the scripture labels them. The book of Revelation labels them for you. So Satan has his little unholy trinity, uh, father, son, and false prophet, so to speak, Satan, Antichrist, and false prophet. And at the very end of that, you see in chapter 13, you see the mark of the beast, and you see that the Christians who don't accept the mark of the beast, loyalty to the beast, worshiping the Antichrist, that if you don't get that, you will be persecuted economically. And then as the book goes on, we'll also be persecuted physically. The next three chapters, 14 through 16, I lump together because they basically are the seven bowls of wrath being poured out on the earth, meaning the final set of seven judgments. We had the seven seals, we had seven trumpets, and now the seven bowls. And they're basically blows being struck to the earth and to the, to the Antichrist and his kingdom. Blows of judgment, very reminiscent of Exodus when God struck the kingdom of pharaoh with judgments. So those have been the last two lessons as we head into sort of the home stretch of the tribulation. Well, we've got some
0: great questions about those sections. Uh, the first question is is on the topic that I think a lot of people have questions on and that is the mark of the beast. But this is mm-hmm. this is this is one that shows somebody has a little bit of, of knowledge on what's going on in the commentaries and scholarship. They ask, why do some manuscripts say the mark of the beast is 616? Of course, anybody who's listened to any rock music from the 80s knows that it's 666 is the mark of the beast. So why is there confusion here?
1: Great question. Let me give just a little bit of background. So your New Testament was written in Greek, and we... We have over 20,000 fragments, portions. Some of them are are full New Testament. Some of them are full books, et cetera. In other words, after these letters were written, this letter of Revelation, for example, people began to copy it, obviously, by hand. And for 15 centuries, they copied it by hand and wrote it down and shared it and wrote it down and shared it. And so we come up with today, we have more than 20,000 different pieces or copies of the New Testament. Well, there are occasionally times when you'll see some of those copies have a little bit of a difference. Usually it's a spelling difference or something like that. But in this case, a few, not really very important manuscripts, but a few manuscripts have 616 instead of 666. And uh, I attribute that to a copying error. Now, your New Testament is inspired by the Holy Spirit. But all those faithful people throughout the 1,500 years before the printing press was developed, well, they were not inspired. They were just faithful people, and they did indeed make mistakes. And uh, the people that translated uh, the New Testament look at those manuscripts and look at all those manuscripts, and they realize, okay, there are only a handful that have this. That is likely what's called a scribal uh, transmission error, meaning somebody's copying it you're copying it by candlelight, you're tired, you know, whatever, you'll get a few errors. By the way, this reading 666, undoubtedly, your translators have made the right move on this. And uh, I'll add one other thing for those who were sharp enough to figure this out, will be sharp enough to appreciate this. Irenaeus was an early church father. Irenaeus was born about 35 years after Revelation was written. So he was born in 130 AD, lived to 202, I believe, right around there. Give or take, maybe 60 years after it was written. Give or take. Yeah. So, well, right. I've been making the assumption it's written in 95. So I'm going to go from that, Uh, although I won't quibble if someone wants to argue about that. But Irenaeus was aware of the 616 reading as well. In other words, it's already been copied a lot. And Irenaeus said that it's undoubtedly 666, And Irenaeus said he had spoken to some people who were alive when he was alive, and they had heard, they sat at the feet of the Apostle John. They knew the Apostle John. They were young people learning from him, and that they also verified that it was 666. So basically, that's a long-winded way of saying, I think you just see a handful of manuscripts with a a scribal transmission error, and I do think your New Testaments have it right with 666. Well, I think the, the prominent person
0: that's argued for this is Dan Wallace, I think, argued on on the basis of some manuscript evidence that maybe it should be right. 616. But for manuscript differences, you hardly ever have such a shoe-in as you have in Irenaeus pointing that out, uh, which right. gives you a lot of confidence about the reliability of that manuscript difference. The second question is, can Christians be deceived into getting the mark of the beast?
1: This, Cole, I think this is a very good question, a very timely question, Uh, and my answer is going to be yes and no, but I really want to explain what I mean by that. Because when you read this, you realize that getting the mark of the beast allows you to buy and sell, that the beast is going to look like a good guy, you're going to have the false prophet out there basically saying, hey, Jesus loves the beast, you know, Jesus loves the Antichrist too. There's going to be a lot of deception. I appreciate this question very much. And so I want to liken it to today for just a moment. And I want to say this, do Christians today get deceived into listening and believing things that the Bible Says are not true. Yes, they do. Do they do it because the deception is so good? No, they don't. In other words, if we're not reading our Bible, if we don't know the Jesus that we serve, if we don't know what Jesus taught, then today, tomorrow, mark of the beast, whatever it may be, we are very susceptible to being deceived. I, let me give you a simple example. You know, and everyone knows that today you go on social media, And you'll find people that believe things that you know are patently untrue. Well, why do they believe it? Because they've just been reading social media and they've just been told over and over and they don't know any better. They never went to check the facts. So I would say if it's a Christian who's not reading their Bible, that doesn't, is biblically illiterate, does not actually know what Jesus taught. Well, yeah, I think Satan might be very successful in deceiving that kind of a Christian. But I want to put your fears to rest. Satan is not so good. That he can deceive you if you read your Bible and you know what the truth is. And, and that's not, I'm not talking about being a scholar, but if you're in the word and you're following Jesus, no, I don't think Satan uh, can deceive you. So I would say, follow Jesus, keep your eyes fixed on him, read your Bible, pray, know what's right and wrong. And I don't believe that a Christian can be deceived by Satan. What would you add to that? Well, I think the the comforting piece of that too, is that God is marking
0: his people in revelation as the beast is marking his people there's a lot of imitation going on from the beast not just in the unholy trinity that he comes up with but the marking is a response to god marking his own people and then in the end again marking everyone who's in the new jerusalem on the forehead uh the second this next question actually our third question is is a question i would consider from the same vantage point and so we'll kind of continue on this these same lines, does the progressive Christian movement resemble the false prophet? Again, are we seeing deception within the church like what we see in the book of Revelation?
1: Yes, that's a very good question. Uh, Let me get technical for just a minute. If you're a futurist, then you would say that the false prophet is a specific individual organization, religious organization, in that seven-year period in the future, And so you probably wouldn't say, "Okay, progressive Christianity is the false prophet. But in the spirit of this question, though, I think I know what this question is saying. And it is, is the false prophet going to do things like that? Uh, And I think the answer is yes, absolutely. Uh, From the very earliest time, you get the warning that there will be false teachers. And we know from the New Testament letters, there were people teaching that, hey, I'm a Christian, but you know what? Jesus doesn't care about your sexual morality. Or I'm a Christian, and I don't think Jesus was actually crucified. They were teaching a lot of things, and they were called false teachers, or I'll just use the phrase false prophet. And so, yes, some of the doctrines that are being espoused by progressive Christianity, meaning... Jesus didn't really mean this, or you really can do this, or the Bible is stuck in the past, and nowadays you can do this. If you see Christians teaching that, I think it is essentially the same thing that the false prophet and all the false teachers have done historically. That's a very good question. I do think that's going on. I will throw in that if you are a symbolic view of Revelation, you're really comfortable with that, because you think that Revelation is telling you recurring truths. You may think there's a a special false prophet at the end time, but you actually think this book is speaking to every Christian of all times. And that certainly resonates with a false teacher or false prophet. So uh, great question. I do think that happens today.
0: Yeah, there's a sense in which all deception, all idolatry that it comes from temptation and deception is similar Mm -hmm. to what you're seeing uh, from the very beginning in the garden. Did God really say, as a root of temptation is very similar. I do think there are certain things about progressive and you have to be a little bit careful using that because that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Right. But there are some, there are some key components of today's progressive Christianity that look very similar to what's promised in the book of revelation. The one that that I think appears most often is in the beginning, when you have the letters to the seven churches, you have the church of Thyatira where Jezebel is a false teacher. And Jezebel is uh, obviously coming name-wise. It's evoking the memory of Jezebel, who was a false teacher in the kingdom of Israel, married to King Ahab. And what she was doing then and what she's doing in the church in Thyatira and what we're seeing with the great harlot later on are all basically the same kind of temptation. They have an idolatry component. And they have a sexual sin component. So in the church of Thyatira, the warning, Jesus says, I have this against you. This is in chapter two, verse 20. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. She's inside the church and is teaching and seducing my servants, church people, Mm -hmm. to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. And there's a long thing we could go into about what exactly we think is happening here. But That's a hallmark of progressive Christianity in certain churches, in certain facets today. The deception uh, to not follow God's plan uh, and his design for things like marriage and gender, when that is taught within the church, it's a very Jezebel-like false teaching. Uh, Again, it doesn't necessarily make it that much different than other kinds of false teaching, but it's the same sins, the same false teaching that you see in Revelation, you see in our
1: culture today. And you've seen that in a lot of parts of the history of the church as well. Yeah, we talked in the the latest lesson, chapters 14 through 16, about how often the phrase sexual immorality, because we're going to see that with Babylon the Great, is going to be the next great storyline in the book of Revelation we're headed into. And her quote, sexual immorality and how she led people into her sexual immorality. And in the in the book of Revelation, really the entire Bible, sexual immorality can mean literally uh, sexual immorality that is contrary to God's, but it can also mean idolatry. And it's amazing to me, I think I said this in the last lesson, how often those two things go together, that you do see a loosening of God's Morals, God's view of right and wrong, particularly around sexuality. And at the same time, that seems to go hand in hand with displacing God from the throne and putting something else on the throne my desires, my liberty. And you're right, Cole, that's exactly what Jezebel did. Jezebel said, You don't want to worship Yahweh anymore. You want to worship Baal. And by the way, when you worship Baal, we're going to do fertility rituals, meaning we have very explicit sexual uh, worship practices that go against God's. It's amazing to me how often those two things go together, and I think we're seeing the same thing today.
0: Mm -hmm. The last question we have skips forward a little bit in the story, uh, in the storyline of Revelation. Will Christians fight in the Battle of Armageddon?
1: Well, the short answer to this is no. Uh, when we get to the Battle of Armageddon, you're going to going to actually be a little bit let down because there's such a great buildup. And the, the Satan and the Antichrist go to so much trouble to get this really big army. And then when you read about the battle, it's over in just about a verse or two. And it doesn't involve Christians fighting. You remember so many times in the Old Testament how God says, I will fight this battle for you. And that's true in the Battle of Armageddon. Christians are not called to go kill people for God, but sometimes they are, and we've seen that, we are called to lay down our lives for our Lord. Andrew Roberts, the uh, famous British historian, uh, had a line one time, and I thought this was really astute. He said, historically speaking, leaders have never had all that much trouble getting people to kill for them but asking people to die for you is a very different thing. And so our God says, will you be faithful to me, even if it involves dying for me, but we will not be the ones taking up weapons in the battle of Armageddon. Our God fights that battle for us. Well,
0: that's a comforting message, especially with all of the popular portrayals of the giant battle of Armageddon, you get to that point in right. Revelation and you realize, oh, this is a little bit different than I expected it to be. Um, and for Christians especially, it's it's a great example of at the end of all things, it's not us making the world right, it's Christ making the world right. And the word that comes out of his mouth, the truth that comes out of his mouth is what's going to do the fighting in the end Uh, but he does have a great appearance he makes a great appearance and i won't steal any of your thunder for future lessons but definitely comes in as a dread warrior and he is ready for the battle but the battle is already won and that's a great comfort as you get to the final pages of revelation amen